pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here in a place where we can worship, and we can worship you, where we can meet freely, when we can open up your word and read and study and learn and be encouraged by it. I ask you, dear Father, that you might be faithful to your word, that you might use your word in our hearts, that your word may become today what it is already, a sword which is able to pierce our hearts and make change within it, a word that does not go and return to you void, but the word which is doing what you have sent it to do, that is to change our hearts, to confirm us to the image of your Son. I need you today as I open up your word and as I expand on it, as I explain it, as I guide these people through it. Uh, please guide me as well. And please guide the hearers that their hearts might be receptive, that the word of God might do its work, and that our hearts might rejoice in the end, knowing you better, serving you more faithfully. Please come today, as you're already here, and minister to our hearts. Amen. When I came up here after these two songs, uh, it just dawned on me once again how, how wonderful our God is in orchestrating things around me. When Pastor Dan asked me to come and preach, he already planned the service. He already planned the songs uh, without knowing what I will choose for the passage today. And uh, it is such a wonderful thing to be reminded of the hand of God among you, um, that he is preparing your hearts for the message even before the message is proclaimed. We have just sang songs about the love of our Savior, about his crucifixion and what it has done to us, that in his crucifixion, Jesus has indeed conquered our sin and made us whole. By his stripes, we are healed. Uh, on him, our God laid our iniquities and our sins. And this is what we are going to read today in the book of Isaiah. And my goal for you today is to just simply open up the scriptures, as Philip has done, to this, as Philip has done with the eunuch. I hope that the Spirit will work in you and in me as well, that as we read from the book of Isaiah, the words, of the, the words which the eunuch was reading, and a bit more than that. And as I explained it to you, pointing out our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, our hearts might be drawn to him, that our hearts might be renewed in, 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 in an amazing excitement for what God has done for us, that our, that, our, that our lives not just be renewed and refreshed in knowing what God has done for us, but our hearts might also be realigned with our Savior, who has come with a specific purpose to redeem you, to redeem you from something you could not redeem yourself of. And as we realign our hearts to him, and as we realign our lives to him, that his life might shine through us, and that the joy which was the eunuchs might be ours by the end of the hour. Uh, that's a big task, and we are ready to dive into it, but I believe that the Word of God should be able to do that. 
the word of God is powerful. It's living. Uh, so listen to it. I would like to ask you to please stand. Stand with me and open up your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. From verse 13, I will read, and I will read all the way to the end of chapter 53. It's going to be a longer passage, but I would like you to please bear with me. If you cannot stand, that's perfectly fine. As I read to you, you will probably notice that some of the words I read will be different than what you have in your translation. Please just bear with me now as I read through it. And let me explain it to you later um, as I go back to it, okay? Okay, let's read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, so his presence is an anointing beyond that of man, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see, and that which they, what, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what, has, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned indeed everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the, to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the living, stricken, for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord accepted the crushing of him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. If his soul makes a reparation offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper by his hand. Because of the labor of his life, he will see light. He will be satisfied by his knowledge. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he will divide a spoil with the numerous. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sins of many, and interceded for their transgressions. You may be seated. 
We have just read the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah keeps returning back to this image of a servant. Uh, he's, he's ever mentioning the servant when he mentions God's plan to redeem. Every time God is planning to redeem something or someone, every time he is touching down on earth, he does it through an agent. Isaiah calls him the servant of the Lord. In the book of Isaiah, the term servant sometimes is applied to the whole nation of Israel. Uh, in many of the songs, in four of them, uh, there are four songs, and in the first three, the servant is usually the whole nation of Israel. In the third song, the servant changes, and as it was talking about Israel just in the beginning of the song, in the end of the song, in chapter 49, I believe, the servant changes uh, from the nation to an individual within the nation. And when, it, and when we come to the fourth servant song, which we have just read, Isaiah is talking about that one individual. Even though the servant can be the nation of Israel in the book of Isaiah, or can be this ultimate servant, which we have just read, and which we know by name as Jesus Christ, our Savior, and even though the... the the term servant can, can even be applied to a pagan king like Cyrus in the book of Isaiah, where he's called the servant of the Lord who will do what God has planned. Isaiah today here talks about the ultimate servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah, when he speaks these words, when he writes them down later, uh, was heavily within his prophetic ministry in the southern kingdom of, of Israel. The northern kingdom has already rejected God. Uh, they, have, uh, they have rejected God long ago, and his patience ran out. Uh, his justice in, and his promises to curse them has come to fruition, and the northern kingdom was taken away. And now it's turn for the southern kingdom to face their God once again in his mercy sending one prophet after another calling them warning them return to me unless you do so I will take you out of the land the land will speak you out he says Isaiah is speaking to the nation and the nation around Isaiah is well described by words like death one who cannot hear like blind who cannot see, like stiff-necked, stone-hearted people who are not hearing the words of the Lord. And I wonder today where your heart is uh, when we read the words of God. Are you blind? Are you deaf? Is your heart cold? Is it stone? Are you falling asleep maybe? Uh, I apologize for my soothing voice. I have three sons. I, I need to develop that. <laughs> Where is your heart today? Is your heart like, like, like of those people around Isaiah? I pray that it's not. And as the nation around Isaiah, uh, God is still trying to use them. God is still holding up promises towards them. God has planned 
long, long time ago, before the nation was a nation, before everything has started with the Jewish people back in Abraham, that I will bless everyone through you, Abraham. Through your offspring, the nations shall be blessed. God has told Abraham. And Abraham had offspring, had many offsprings, and God's promise to use that, that nation still stands in the book of Isaiah, in the time of Isaiah. Yet, in the time of Isaiah, this, this promise of God becomes more and more unbelievable. It is hard to see how a blind and deaf people could bring light to the Gentiles. They don't even see it for themselves. They are not seeking for it. Isaiah says they have turned away, everyone to his own way. But God's promises are still secure, and he will bring it to pass what he has decreed, that through the offspring of Abraham, he will bring about the salvation of the nations. About the nation we read in Isaiah chapter 42, these words, who is blind but my servant, or deaf, my, or deaf as my messenger whom I sent? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. In this passage, the servant still means the nation of Israel. A quite, a quite profound picture of a completely useless servant. But God is not done with his songs. Uh, there are not three servant songs, but there are four. And, God promises, and God's promises will not fail. In the third song, in Isaiah 49, God turns to his individual servant. And he says to him, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And we have just read about this servant. And it is good for us to go through this song once again and look at this servant with careful eyes and to see exactly how the Lord is using him, what the Lord has done through him and, and what the Lord has done to him. And when we look at the servant with careful eyes, I believe that we will have the joy uh, what, what we have just read about the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. When, he, when, when, when Philip took this passage and opened it up to him and explained it to him, his response was a complete allegiance to Jesus. He wanted to be one with him because he understood that Jesus is one with him already, that Jesus has taken him upon himself, and did everything for him. And the joy has filled his heart when that, when that unification became real in his life. But let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 50, 52, beginning in verse 13, I read the first stanza of this five stanza song. I will not have a perfect outline for you. There are, not three, there are no three points, nor four, nor even five. But I would like, like us to just work through this song as a song and listen to it carefully. Uh, Isaiah is not thinking like we do. He's not a linear thinker, but he projects what he wants to say in the beginning 
and he talks about it, and then he recirculates, and then he talks about it, and then he recirculates of what he, has, what, what he wants to tell you. So listen carefully in these beginning verses as Isaiah is bringing to you this servant of the Lord. He says of him, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, so his appearance is an anointing beyond that of man and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which, have, and that which they have not heard, they understand. You probably caught it in my reading that your translation differs from mine. The only thing uh, which is probably different and my reading is verse 14. When I read, so his appearance is an anointing beyond that of man. Isaiah tries to paint a picture of this servant in the first stanza as a servant who is not just a servant, but a servant who is a great king, a servant who is a great priest, a servant who is wise beyond our understanding, a servant when he is compared to the kings of the nations, the kings of the nations shut their mouths because of him. He is an exalted, high and lifted up, indeed a God-like, a God-servant himself. When Isaiah uses words like high and lifted up, he's always using it to refer to God. You might recall Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees a vision of God and he says he is high and lifted up. This is the servant of the Lord. In my translation, as I read, as an anointing beyond that of man, and the translation difference goes back to the Hebrew, and I'm not going to explain every bit of it to you, but Hebrew, but Hebrew language is uh, it's a strange-looking language for us. Especially in the original writings, there is only consonants, no vowels. Everything is run together. Uh, everything was written by hand for a long, long time, and it's, and, it's, and it's easy to misunderstand a word here and there. It is easy to confuse a vav with a nun, maybe, if you are familiar with Hebrew a little bit. Um, it, is, it is easy to confuse things, but as we look at the text in its context, that is our ultimate guide. And as we look at this stanza and as we recognize that Isaiah is trying to tell us that this servant is a king, that this servant is high and lifted up, then all of a sudden the reading that his appearance was marred beyond human assemblance sounds a little bit strange because a king is not marred. A king is not beaten up. Isaiah is not yet talking about the suffering of the servant. He will talk about it pretty soon here. Uh, but not in this passage. Isaiah tries to help you see how amazing this servant is, how capable he is, how powerful he is. He is not blind like the nation. He is not deaf like the nation. He is a powerful, high and lifted up king. He's a priest. Not just any kind of priest who will sprinkle one nation like Aaron did in the in, in the wilderness, but who is able to sprinkle many nations. He is a high and lift, lifted, lifted up king and wiser 
and more understanding than any of the kings around us. And as you finish this first stanza, I would like you to have that picture of the servant in your mind behind you. An amazing, beautiful servant. God has made him so. And our second stanza will hit you as it should. Isaiah turns and talks about the servant and tells us that he is rejected by his peers. How come? How come a beautiful, wise king, a mighty priest, how come he is rejected? But read with me. Isaiah 53, verse 1 starts, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The transition is quite accurate in the case that this hits us like a hammer. If we read it again, we can find words in it which, is, which are describing not a beautiful king, not a powerful bun, but someone who is weak and frail. He's a root out of a dry ground. He's a young plant. He has no form or majesty, no beauty. He's not like a king that people would choose for themselves. He's not like Saul in the Old Testament who was taller than everyone and handsome in his appearance and people pointed at him and that he should be our king. This servant, when he came, he was not anything special. People looked at him and despised him, rejected him. He became a man of sorrows. He was well familiar with grief. He was despised and people did not esteem him to be what he is, even though he said it clearly. I and the Father are one. He who said it clearly that Isaiah talks about me. Isaiah saw my day and rejoiced in it. This man, Jesus, was rejected, even though he is king. He is king. And how, how is it even possible? How is it even possible? Why is it even possible that a king so high and lifted up should stoop down to a level, should pick up a form which is not anything unique, which is not anything special. How come that people reject him right away? The third stanza will explain it to us. The, the third stanza, just as in a song, quickly follows after the second and gives us, gives us the reason why the servant suffers the servant suffers for us, for you and me, for the nation of Israel, for his peers, for his contemporaries, and not, for just, not just for them, but for everyone else. From verse 4, actually, yes, from, from verse 4, 
we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word surely in the beginning of our stanza lets us know the only possible answer to our question. The great king and priest whom we have seen in the first stanza is only rejected because of you. Because of me. There is simply no other explanation. Why should a wise king as might and the mighty priest should be rejected or, or should suffer unless he is not only the priest, but also the sacrifice. Look at him and see that you belong in his place. Read these words, read these words again and, and, and just let, let them linger in, in your hearts and in your thoughts. He has borne our griefs. Yours and mine carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why he's so so esteemed as nothing. That, that's why he's so rejected. That's why his form is not pleasant. That's why we do not desire him as a king. And because he is so, so oppressed, so weighted down by the weight of your sin and mine, as God has laid on him the iniquity of our soul. And indeed, it can only be laid on a king. The sins of the people, the troubles of the people, the fights of the people can only be laid on top of a king. Only a king can say, I am the nation. Only the king can go out in a duel in the middle of a fight and fight for his nation. And if he prevails, everyone prevails with him. Only a king can bear the authority of his nation behind him. Only the king can say something and everyone hears it as a proclamation of the nation. Only the president can say something and everyone thinks of the USA in a certain manner, for better or worse, in these days. A king, a kingly priest, can bear the iniquity of us all. As the sacrifice back in the Old Testament was led to the priest, and as the person who brought it had to go up on the sacrifice and lay his hand on it and confess the sins, what he has committed, and transferred his sin and guilt over to the sacrifice, so the sacrifice would die that he, that he should not die. So as God laid his hand on his servant, God himself, not you and me, but God himself proclaimed your sins on the Son. And he took it. 
and he took it. It's no longer yours. It's his. And he paid. He paid the penalty of it. The fourth stanza. The fourth stanza follows the third once again rather quickly and completes the picture of the servant's suffering. I would like you to please look at this servant and see what the eunuch has seen after Philip guided him through the passage. He saw Jesus and saw him most clearly. Read with me from verse 7 as we pick up our reading. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I would like to tell you that Philip is 100% right. There is absolutely no other person who fits this description better or at all than our Lord Jesus Christ. When the eunuch said, to whom I say the, the prophet is talking about, is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? Someone else. And we know his name. Undeniably, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It was him that the eunuch clearly saw, as Philip read and explained. It was only he who opened not his mouth when he, was, when he did not respond to the accusers before Pilate or where he did not respond to the high priest when he accused him over and over again, and, and, and he was even probed. Will you not give an answer to these accusations? He did not. When he asked to confess who he is, he did. He said, I am he who will come in the clouds of glory with, with my angels. But he did not answer the accusations. Uh, he was reviled, yet he did not open his mouth. He, and we read of him that he was reviled as one who is innocent, as one who didn't do anything wrong. Is there any other person, I ask you, in the whole human history whom you can read about and research as deep as you can find and find no fault in him? Jesus indeed bravely says, and rightly so, who is it among you that find, that find, find fault in me? Bring it to me. Let's discuss it. He, he, he will challenge the Pharisees again and again. If there is anything I do which goes against the law, point it out. Bring it out. There is nothing. There is nothing, and let me tell you, those Pharisees were watching from the first time Jesus appeared, and from the first time John pointed his finger at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Through those three years, they have been following him like a faithful dog, and has watched every deed he did, watched every word he ever spoke. And in the end of the three years, when he was brought before the high priest, they had to 
find false witness against him. And even the false witness didn't agree. Jesus was perfect. He was perfect. Yet, yet he died. The only explanation hides within you and me. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the song is not over. And the song is not over yet. And what Isaiah has been talking about from the very beginning, that this servant whom I will talk about, whom you will see as stricken and smitten by God, whom you will see as afflicted and depressed and wounded, this servant is, in, is indeed a high and lifted up king, a high priest beyond your imagination who is not only able to sprinkle a nation or sprinkle you or sprinkle an altar, but who sprinkles many nations with his blood and cleanses them from their iniquity. He is a high and exalted king. And Isaiah tells us how. Look at verse 10. And again, note the differences. But the Lord accepted the crushing of him. He has put him to grief. If his soul makes a reparation offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper by his hand. Because of the labor of his life, he will see light. He will be satisfied by his he will be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous servant will make many to be accounted righteous and he will bear their iniquities therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he will divide a spoil with the numerous because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many and in and interceded for their transgressions Wow. How can it be? Uh, who, who could believe our report when we talk about this servant? Who could believe that, that, that God has crushed a servant to the point of death and the story is not over? That's unbelievable. It's supernatural. It is the fact which holds an anchor within the whale for your soul. It is the fact because it, it is the fact which makes us gather today. It is the one thing, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which makes us look like fools today. <laughs> it is the one thing which is which is to be debunked would ruin our faith completely. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, of all people, we are the most miserable. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. If there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness. If there is no resurrection, we might as well go out, leave everything, get drunk and die. But there is. There is resurrection. There is a coming of a time when you will see your father who created you, and you have to give an account of your life. And I'm telling you, if there is not the servant right in front of you, if the blood of the servant who has, who has been raised, and, and the book of Hebrews says, carried up his blood to the most holy place in heaven, if that blood is not over you, you are doomed in the presence of God. 
but the servant lives. He took his blood up to he took his blood up to God. And we read and we read of him that the Lord accepted the crushing of him. This is probably a little bit different than in your translation. And indeed, if you have a King James or an NASB Bible, you're reading something like this, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. However, the Bible never mentions God as someone who is delighted in suffering, much less delighted to inflict punishment. On the contrary, we can read, as God proclaims in Ezekiel 33, 11, the following, Ezekiel 33:11, God says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how can we even think that he would take pleasure in the death of his righteous servant? He does not. He does not. God does not delight in what happens to the servant. God delights in what the servant does. That's a big difference. As the servant pours out his life as a guilt or as a reparation offering, God is not delighted to see him bruised. God is not delighted to see him flogged. God is not delighted to see him nailed to a cross and breathe his last. God is not delighted in the suffering of his servant, but he is delighted in what the servant does. He is delighted in his obedience. He is delighted in his willingness to die as an innocent lamb with the sins of the word upon his shoulders. God is delighted in that. On the other hand, it is undeniable that it was the will of God that this might happen to him. It is also undeniable that it was the will of the Son that this might happen to him. He was not forced to the cross. He went by himself. He said of himself that no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to put down my life and the authority to take it up again. But God has made him sick. God has afflicted him when he laid his hands on him and when he transferred our sin upon his shoulders. We have read about that already in verse 6. God has put on him our grief. Without such replacement, there would be no reparation. There would be no opportunity for you and I to come to our Father and come freely. But there was. There was. Jesus has died in your place and in mine, and he rose again. The stanza continues in an amazing description of how God brings, brings his servant back to life. He says that if my servant will be obedient back 700 years before Jesus comes, he says that if you do this, my son, here is what is waiting for you. He will see his offspring he will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Because of the labor of your life, son, you will see light. You will be satisfied. By your knowledge, 
you will make many to be, to be accounted righteous. Because of what you have done, I will divide a spoil with you among the many. And you will go with the many and, and you will divide your inheritance with them. Son, if you do this, if you remain obedient to my plan, you will be glorious. He poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many and interceded for their transgressions. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. And I believe one of the major reasons he did it because he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible very well. Uh, he wrote it. <laughs> uh, just, just in case that needs to be reaffirmed. Uh, but he knew his Bible, not, not because he had a divine knowledge from infancy, but, he was, but because he was a diligent student. Uh, he was a man like us, yet without sin. Uh, when his daddy told him to go to the synagogue and to go to Hebrew school and to learn the scriptures, he went and did it. He did it with excellence, and at age 12, he could cite the scriptures better than the teachers of the law in Jerusalem. Uh, he learned it. He read about himself. And the book of Hebrews says that he saw the glory which was waiting for him. He saw the exaltation which was ready for him. And he went obediently to the cross. By many sufferings, God has made him perfect, even though he was already perfect, but God has fulfilled his perfectness. And he went to the cross and died for you and me. So what do we do with this servant? What do we do with this servant? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see him? He is high and lifted up. He has authority over everything. Kings shut their mouths at his presence. When he comes, there will be no one who will say no to him, but every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. He is an amazing high priest. Do you see that? Do you see that his blood, not just a high priest, but an amazing sacrifice who sprinkles you, who makes a ready way for you to, to access God, to come back to him, who makes a reparation offering. And the book of Leviticus talks about this offering as one which is offered up for a rebellious son so that the rebellious son might not suffer death, but he could be reunited to his earthly father. Jesus done that for you. You could be reunited to your heavenly father forever. Do you see the servant? Do you see the Savior? If you haven't yet, then today is the time to put your trust in him. He has died for your sins, and just as much as he died for anyone else, he rose again. He is ready to forgive and bring, back, and bring you back to the Father. Come to him. If you haven't yet, come to him today. Don't wait for the next opportunity.
please be like that eunuch who had the first opportunity stopped the chariot and said, I want what you're talking about. I want to be united with Christ in baptism. Not that baptism saves, but that he wanted to show that indeed as I go under the water, I am buried with Christ. And indeed, as I am raised from the water, I am raised in newness of life. Don't wait. Don't wait. Do you see the servant? Do you see the Savior? Or have you forgotten about him? Have you forgotten about him? Was it too long ago when you last looked at him and saw, and saw your sin as it should be? as pricey, as ugly. If you have, I ask you, please come to him. Please come to your Savior. See him and turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. See what, see what your sin has done. And please hate it. Please hate it. See what price has been paid for your sin. And as you turn from your sin, rejoice. Rejoice because what the Son has prepared, that reparation, that's now yours. When you leave your sins behind and when you, and when you realize that it's done away with, fellowship can be restored. Read the book of 1 John in your spare time. And please crave that fellowship which he talks about. That fellowship, that sweet fellowship which John talks about as, as, as so close to him that you can almost feel your touch on him. That fellowship will only come when you turn from your sin. That fellowship can be yours even now. So turn from your sin. How about the rest of you whose, whose hearts are full with him? Whom just listened through this long sermon and you heard nothing new. And you, and, you, and you thought to yourself, these are the thoughts I had while we were singing. These are the thoughts which were overflowing from my heart this morning. These are the thoughts which have guided my heart throughout the week that I have a Savior who has died for my sins. I encourage you, if your heart is filled with joy, knowing what Jesus has done for you, please let that overflow. Please go and tell about this servant. Please let people be astonished at him. Please let people know that there is a high and lifted up king who stooped down to become a servant for their sake and who has died for their sins and rose again and ready to forgive them. Please proclaim the gospel. Please proclaim the gospel. So do you see him? Do you see him? If you do, come to him. Wherever you are. If you do, then please turn from your sin. God takes it rather seriously. Jesus took it rather seriously. You should too. And I don't want to leave you thinking that you can do it. <laughs> oh, you can't. But the Holy Spirit within you is a spirit of power and authority. 
It's a spirit not of fear, but of victory. He can do it. And we need him. We terribly need him. Would you please stand with me? Let's, let's ask the Father to impress the image of his servant on our hearts, on our minds daily. That we might live. That we might live in his presence. That we might live in his awareness. That our hearts might be realigned with his that we would look at sin as he does, that we would look at salvation and its richness as he does, that we, would, that we would be in his work as he proclaims and brings salvation to the nations. We need his help. We terribly need his help. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are glad that we can call you such. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience unto death. Thank you for your power to pick your life up again, and thank you for doing so. Thank you for conquering sin and death forever. Thank you for making a way ready for us that we can come back to our Father. Please impress your image upon our hearts. Um, please let us come to you. And daily, let us turn from our sin, no matter how small we think it is or how grave it might be. Uh, please impress your image upon our hearts and please open our eyes to see the nation, the nations around us as they are. The nations who are waiting for your salvation, which you have made ready for them, help us to go to them. Help us to go to our next door neighbor as well. We need your grace, we need your mercy, we need your truth to conform our hearts to you evermore. So please be with us and strengthen us. We need your help. And we are so amazingly grateful that you are available. Amen. Amen. You all are dismissed, I believe. Uh, uh, I will be here for a Sunday school meeting, uh, which we start in half an hour. Uh, so you will 15 minutes 15 minutes we should start starting 15 minutes and we can talk a little bit more and ha and can have deeper discussions uh, about the passage and thank you so much for coming